Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm a writer. And I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And this is our podcast, Reading During Recess. And today we are talking about Harriet the Spy. So this book was published in 1964. It was written by Louise Fitzhugh, and it appeared on a 1964 list of the year's best juveniles, which is a weird way to put that. Makes, yeah, it Makes wait. it sound like they're ranking children. <laughs> Oh my god, please. I would love to have a list. Who would you put at the at the top of the year's best juveniles? I mean, I think it's obviously Olivia Rodrigo, right? She's crushing it. Love her. <laughs> Olivia, if you listen to the podcast, we love you. We're 26, but we're rocking with you. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the year's best juveniles refers to a list about books in the New York Times book review. And one 1965 reviewer called the book a brilliantly written, unsparing, realistic story, a superb portrait of an extraordinary child, which is a little heavy handed. But yeah, I agree. Another reviewer found that Harry the Spy, quote, captures the feelings, thoughts, and situations of a modern city child with remarkable clarity and dimension. So some reviewers really liked it. However, at least one reviewer in 1965 said that the book, quote, uh, dealt with disagreeable people and situations, <laughs> which is true. Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, other books also. And is that the criteria for what makes a book lousy? <laughs> I feel like being alive is primarily just navigating disagreeable people and exactly. situations. So. so the book initially received really positive reviews when it was first published, but Book Week in 1965 questioned the, quote, lack of warmth or kindliness in any of the characters. <laughs> and after this review, the book became a subject of widespread criticism. And there are really three main critiques that, one, the characters were unpleasant, <laughs> two, readers might copy Harriet, and three, Old Golly's advice was immoral. Yeah, so we'll, all of those critiques will make more sense once we explain the summary of the book, because it's probably been a while since you guys have read this book. So it is time for us to give you guys a summary. The book centers around Harriet M. Welsh, who is an 11-year-old aspiring writer who lives with her family, which is just her mother and father, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And she also lives with and is very close to her nanny, Old Golly, who encourages her to keep a notebook. And Harriet fills her notebook with honest but often unflattering observations about her neighbors, family, friends, teachers, and classmates. A couple of my favorite observations of hers revolve around Pinky Whitehead, which is a god-awful name. Oh my god. The last name Whitehead, for starters, which is amazing. And then to have a child and allow it to be named, or I'm sorry, to make the decision to name it Pinky? Yeah. You know what, though? You know what I am just remembering? My sixth grade math teacher's first name was Pinky. That's not a name. <laughs> Evidently it is. What was their and gender? She is a woman. I say is. I don't know if she's since passed away. I hope not. R.I. Pinky. <laughs> Rest in Pinky. Anyway, that was an aside. The point is Pinky Whitehead does exist in this universe and is a blight in Harriet's life. Yes, yeah, so Harriet writes in her notebook, My mother is always saying Pinky Whitehead's whole problem is his mother. I better ask her what that means, or I'll never find out. Does his mother hate him? If I had him, I'd hate him. 
she also makes an observation about uh, their principal, Miss Whitehead. Any relation to Pinky? Oh, I thought that was, that was Pinky Whitehead's mom. Is it not? I don't think it is because she seems to respect this woman. Miss Angela Whitehead, the present dean, stood at the podium. It doesn't say that she's related to Pinky Whitehead, but it also doesn't say that she's not. That's really odd. But yeah, I was thinking about it while I was reading it, because I genuinely do not believe that they're related, but how many whiteheads are there? And can God. there be fewer? Anyway, the point is, this is Harriet's take on Miss Whitehead. Miss Whitehead's feet look larger this year. Miss Whitehead has buck teeth, thin hair, feet like skis, and a very long hanging stomach. Old Golly says description is good for the soul and clears the brain like a laxative. That should take care of Miss Whitehead. Vicious. Can you imagine? Wow. Also, what does a very long hanging stomach look like? I don't know. I was just trying to picture that myself. I'm, I'm picturing it kind of pendulous. Yeah, I hate that word, but I, I think you're right. Also, thin hair, hurtful. Feet like skis, good God. Like, we couldn't have left it with buck teeth. <laughs> I know. No insult left unturned. <laughs> nope. Also, I want to start ending all of my cruel comments with, that should take care of blank. Yeah. Which is, I think, out of all of those criticisms, easily the harshest thing <laughs> in that entire block of text. That takes care of that. <laughs> Moving right along. So, you might not have noticed by now, but Harriet is kind of a bitch. <laughs> um, she writes a lot about her two best friends, who are named Sport and Janie. And they're both very interesting characters as well. Sport really wants to be a professional ball player or a CPA, a certified public accountant, which is an amazing profession for a child to want. He's only in the sixth grade, but he takes care of his father, who is a professional writer, and it's kind of implied an alcoholic. So he cooks, he cleans, and he handles his family's finances, where where he gets that flair for personal accounting. Yes. And uh, Janie is an aspiring scientist and frequently threatens to blow things up. And it's actually where sports dream is to be a professional ball player. They also don't say which kind of ball. Is it football? Is it baseball? Maybe is he's just keeping his options ball? open. <laughs> yeah. Janie's life goal is to blow up the earth. Yeah. Like, not even, like, one thing. Like, the whole planet. I'm really afraid of Janie. She's- the illustrations of her- Janie is, uh, nightmarish. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. But Harriet is also an odd duck. But Harriet is a highly organized child with a very set routine. This routine includes tomato sandwiches, daily milk and cake, which is something she gets to have every day after school, which is amazing. I know. Cake is referenced a lot in this book. It sounds like that was all anybody was doing. And I love it. And of course, her spy route, which she goes on daily and during which she records her findings in her notebook. Yes. So she spies on several neighbors regularly, including Mrs. Plummer, who is a very wealthy woman who sits in bed all day and talks on the phone. And Harriet has figured out that she can sneak into Mrs. Plummer's dumbwaiter and then shimmy her way up to Mrs. Plummer's bedroom and then spy on her. Very brave. Very industrious. Very much so. Okay, I'm trying to remember 
How does she get in the dumbwaiter? Is it accessible from the outside of the house or is she like breaking and entering? She's fully breaking and entering. Cool, just checking. Yeah, she she waits while the maid is preoccupied like getting a delivery and then she slips through the door. She also spies on the DeSantis' grocery store who are a family who own a grocery store and she also spies on the Robinsons who are a boring married couple who really don't talk to each other and only care about purchasing new possessions for their home. I was deeply pained to see a bit of myself in the Robinsons. <laughs> They're like sitting around waiting for a package at one point and I like flashed back to me in all of 2020 being like, is it here? <laughs> is, the, is the package that will fix me here? <laughs> a very, a very painful realization to come to terms with. One other person that she spies on a lot in her neighborhood is Harrison Withers, who is a very old man who has 20 plus cats that he is constantly trying to hide from the health department. I love him. He has the best possible rule for determining whether or not to open your door to someone, which is that if they are wearing a hat, they should not be let in because they are probably with the government. Yeah. So that's how he keeps the health department from taking his cats. Yeah, Harriet spies on Harrison by climbing onto his roof and looking through his skylight. So That is very invasive. Somehow to me that feels worse than the dumbwaiter. But anyway, so Harriet has this routine, which is a huge part of her life, and it gets tremendously upended when her nanny, Olgali, who is like the only person who really seems to understand her and speak to her on her level, Olgali accepts a marriage proposal from a bald man. It's not relevant that he's bald, but he is. And she leaves the Welsh family. And this is a huge problem since Harriet's parents, as I said, really don't know her at all. Harriet says a little while after Olgali has left, I do the same things alone as when Olgali was here. The bath feels hot, the bed feels soft, but I feel like there's a funny little hole in me that wasn't there before, like a splinter in your finger. But this is somewhere above my stomach. Yeah, it's just sad. It is. And the scene where Olgali leaves is, like, also very painful. There's, like, a big confrontation between her and Harriet's parents. And her parents actually fire her. And then Olgali was like, that's okay. (laughs) I was leaving anyway. I just got a marriage proposal. Harriet's old enough to take care of herself. And then Harriet's mom is like, oh, my God, what we do without you? Like, you can't go. And there's just a lot of tension in the scene. It's obvious that Harriet's parents are like, a little nervous at the idea of being left alone with their child, who is undeniably weird. And and that's actually the last we see of Olgali. And then things go from bad to worse. Yeah. So at school, Harriet loses her spy notebook during a game of tag. They play a particular kind of tag where you hold books and then run into each other and try to knock the books out of each other's arms. Sounds like the hallway in my high school. Yeah. And I hated it. It also is a very dangerous game to play if you have a book full of rude things. That's what I'm saying! I'm sorry, I have to lean back from my mic. It is insane that Harriet allowed this game. This girl no doesn't have the sense God gave geese. You know that you have this notebook. And you're going to let your best friends club it out of your hands? 
But yeah, and that is exactly what happens. Her books get knocked out of her hands. She neglects to pick up her notebook and like kind of runs further away. She gets some of her books, but she doesn't get that one. And then she realizes she's missing her notebook and of course immediately goes ballistic because she knows. <laughs> she knows that this could be headed downhill and it is. Her classmates find it, and when she arrives at the scene, they're reading it out loud. In fact, Janie is reading it to the rest of them, and they are horrified by her observations about them, which are brutally honest, and beyond that, are just actively cruel. Honesty is one thing. These are just vicious. For example, one of the ones that I don't even think is that bad, and it's not good, is that Sport is like a little old woman, because he's always worrying about his father, and... This deeply hurts sports feelings. Many things about people being ugly and deserving to be kicked. <laughs> Personal favorite, if Marion Hawthorne doesn't watch out, she's going to grow up into a lady Hitler. Yeah, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I don't even think that's a brutally honest description. I think that's just not nice. Yeah. And like the comments about sport. I would say you can be rude about Janie, but be rude at your own risk because this girl could kill you. Yeah. It's almost fair to be mean about Janie because it's like maybe then you're evenly matched. But Sport is just like this gentle He's so little sweet. boy. And he like he is. And to me, I don't know, it felt particularly cruel because like he's his home life is so tough that to yes. be like, oh, he reminds you of a little old woman like worrying around all the time. It's like, yeah, because he's trying to take care of his dad and he's 11. But the book does touch, I think, a lot on, and not super directly because I didn't get it when I was a kid, but class. It's very obvious that Harriet has no idea where sport is coming from. Like, they talk about money a fair bit, and Harriet obviously lives with a livid nanny and a cook. Her family has a cook. And her parents are always going to these fancy dinners, you know, and Harriet has no idea how privileged she is. And it's kind of a ongoing theme in her friendship with sport. So. So as revenge, Harriet's classmates band together and start a spy catcher club, which includes sport and Janie. And the purpose of the club is to bully Harriet and they steal her lunch, spill ink on her, and pass mean notes about her. The ink scene haunts me. One of the things she comments on is that, like, you know, her classmates have spilled this ink on her on purpose, and obviously her teacher's like, oh no, like, what a what an accident, like, what a trip up. And the classmates are all, like, crowding around her and being like, oh no, Harriet, you know, and then they pour more ink on her, like, while the teacher... And it's just nightmarish to read as a kid. I think it's scary. <laughs> it is scary. The thought of being one person against the world as a kid, mm -hmm. really scary. Anyway, so yeah, Harriet is a social pariah and they are tormenting her daily. And Harriet gives as good as she gets. So Harriet spies on the club and starts scheming up ways to hurt them. At this point, she's very lonely and hurt. She has no one in her life who understands her you know she's lost her friends her parents are confused by her behavior and she doesn't have old golly and she starts obsessively writing in her notebook as a way to cope skipping school and spending all day at home depressed so her parents confiscate her notebook during school hours because her teacher says that harriet's not doing any work she's just writing in her notebook and harriet's parents are very exasperated and concerned and so they take harriet to see a child psychiatrist 
who she appears to only see once, which doesn't seem like enough times, but... Yeah. So the psychiatrist tells Harriet's parents that Old Golly should write Harriet a letter. And in the letter, Old Golly tells Harriet that Harriet will have to do two unpleasant things if she doesn't want to lose her friends. One, she'll have to apologize. And two, she will have to lie. And she'll have to say that what she wrote was untrue. And Olgali says that it's okay to lie sometimes if you're sparing people's feelings. Good advice. Mm-hmm. So Harriet's parents talk to the principal, and it's decided that Harriet will actually get to replace Marion, who's sort of the ruling queen bee, as the editor of the class newspaper. So obviously Harriet takes to this <laughs> instantly. She writes columns about her observations about her classmates, her teachers, her neighbors all these things from her spy route and her columns stay pretty unkind (laughs) but the paper is a huge success everybody's loving it and she does also begin to issue retractions she does a big retraction in the newspaper saying that what she wrote in her spy notebook very indirectly it's not an apology no to be clear she at no point like implicates herself she just says like the paper would like to issue a retraction for things that were said that may or may may not have been said, that may or may not be untrue, and basically takes back what she said about her classmates. And this helps repair her friendship with Sport and Janie. And at the end of the book, Harriet writes in her notebook, now that things are back to normal, I can get some real work done. (laughs) Harriet, you are scary. She's obviously, she's not sorry. That much is clear at the end of the book. And we'll talk more about uh, what makes Harriet's character so interesting, but... Yeah, it is interesting. It's funny that the principal solution to what's really a bullying problem is like, well, let's give one of these bullies a more (laughs) formalized platform (laughs) and see how it goes. I'm sorry, I'm yelling again, but I have to find (laughs) one of the things she says in her column about her teacher, because... I am amazed that she was, A, given this position, and B, allowed to keep it for any... Here it is. Miss Elson was trailed home from school the other day, and it turns out she lives in a real rat hole of an apartment. Maybe the school doesn't pay her enough money to live in a good place. There will be a sizzling editorial on this next week. What? Hello? A real rat hole? Also, I love the passive (laughs) voice there. Can you read the first sentence again? Miss Elson was trailed home from school the other day. <laughs> By who? <laughs> she also roasts her father, though, so that's cool. Like, Harriet is not playing around. She says, Mr. Harry Welsh almost lost his job last week for being late. He is always slow in the morning. Who is that? Re- who cares? This is a school newspaper, and you are so desperate to say mean shit, you're going to come after your own father? Harriet is wild. Yeah, she really has a bright future ahead of her working at, like, a British tabloid, I think. Yes, please. She's right, cruel, innit she? Innit she? Innit? <laughs> she's she's really mugged him off. Proper pied off. Sarah and I have been watching Love Island. <laughs> yeah, so it's a weird ending. We'll talk more about that later. It is. So, a little about the author, Louise Fitzhugh was born in 1928 and passed away in 1974 when she was in her 40s only. Yeah, very young. And she had a brain aneurysm. Only 10 years. Oh my god, I didn't know I know, that. isn't that sad? 
That's heartbreaking. That was only 10 years after this book was published. Yeah. Louise Fitzhugh was an American writer and illustrator of children's books. She's best known for Harriet the Spy, but she also wrote two sequels to Harriet the Spy, one called The Long Secret and one called Sport. And she also wrote a book called Nobody's Family is Going to Change. Fitzhugh, as we said, was also an illustrator, and she illustrated the 1961 children's book Suzuki Bean, which is a parody of Eloise. I don't know if you guys have ever read Eloise, but it's a really, really fun book. Sarah, have you, you read Eloise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's terrific. And it's about a girl, a little girl, precocious child who lives in the plaza. But while Eloise lived in the plaza, Suzuki was the daughter of beatnik parents and slept on a mattress on the floor of a Bleecker Street pad in Greenwich Village. <laughs> and Fitzhugh worked closely with the author, uh, Sandra Scopitone. I'm hope I'm pronouncing that right, to produce Suzuki Bean, and the book incorporated typewriter font and line drawings in a really original way. And today, it's a much sought-after book on used book websites. So according to her New York Times obituary, which was published in 1974, Harriet the Spy helped introduce a new realism to children's fiction and has been widely imitated. Also, this was not mentioned in her New York Times obituary, but Fitzhugh was a lesbian, and Harriet's boy clothing and bravado has made her an important icon among many lesbians who identified with her as children, although sexuality is not directly touched on in any way in the book. And as soon as I learned that Louise Fitzhugh was a lesbian, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. <laughs> it's like, all right, there it is. Yeah, Harriet the Spy has been referenced a lot in books about queerness and children's lit. Mm-hmm. And actually, at the time that Fitzhugh was writing Harriet the Spy, she was also writing a more serious novel called Amelia about an adolescent girl who had fallen in love with another girl. And it was completed in the early 60s, but unfortunately, it never saw publication. If it had been published, uh, it would have been the first gay novel for teens, and it would have predated John Donovan's I'll Get There, It Better Be Worth the Trip by several years. So I found this interesting essay that was published on the Horn Book website. And it was written by Kathleen T. Horning, who is a librarian and a director of the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she said, quote, Until Harriet, I had a steady diet of books written by adults with an idealized view of childhood. As a child, I assumed that simply meant that the adults who wrote them didn't know any real kids. Certainly, they had never been kids themselves. Real kids were sneaky and snarky and sometimes downright mean, like Harriet. They hid their true selves from their parents and teachers, mostly to protect them. Ah, she's right! Kids are terrifying, and especially 11-year-olds, Jesus. And I love that bit about hiding their true selves from teachers and parents to protect, I, I get the impression, teachers and parents. Yeah. Yeah, because... I mean, haven't we all, like, felt as a kid that our parents didn't really know us, and that was probably for the best? Like, <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's... The book is slightly terrifying in its, like, brutal treatment yeah. of every single one of its characters. And again, it really shook me up as a kid. Like, it was, to, to me, a very scary story. It is. Do you want to read the next quote by Catherine? Yeah. She also referenced what uh, other people have noticed as being sort of queerness to the book. She said, I have talked to so many adult lesbians who felt the same way about Harriet. Particularly if you were growing up in the 60s when you really didn't have any other people like you. Harriet was it. What the book told us is that we could be ourselves and survive. 
I think that it's easy to miss this on a reread in 2021, just how boldly Harriet defies gender norms, you know? Mm -hmm. But her clothing of choice is baggy jeans with kind of like a DIY tool belt, a hooded sweatshirt, and high-top sneakers. Um, She's wearing Mm -hmm. boys' clothing, like she's cross-dressing. Yeah, and that didn't... I don't remember finding that particularly notable as a kid when I read the book. And, you know, it. but I think that in 1964, there was probably something pretty radical about that. Yeah. Well, and as a kid, I had no real concepts. Like, when I was... Re- I read this book in early elementary school, and I, <laughs> I would not have been, like, aware of the 60s <laughs> as a point in time. Right. And it literally wasn't until we started talking about this podcast and we mentioned doing Harriet the Spy that I... You know, I was looking back at my old books and I was like, oh my god, this book was published in 64. Like, (laughs) it takes place in the 60s. But because Harriet is not the model of an 11-year-old girl in the 60s, unless, of course, you are looking at a specific kind of girl in the 60s. Yeah. It's also interesting, too, because Janie really defies gender stereotypes as well. You know, like, she's Mm -hmm. this kind of mad scientist. She and Harriet both try to scheme up ways to get out of having to go to dance school because going to dance school to them just sounds like the worst possible fate. In both cases, they're like these little girls who are terrifying their parents. Yeah, yep. (laughs) Janie's parents seem like they're uh, at the edge of sanity. Yeah. Like, probably because Janie has driven them to this. Well, and then you have Sport, you know, who is the caretaker for his father and cooks and cleans and... And that's something that a lot of women talk about, who like in the academic writing about this book, almost all of them bring up the way that Harriet dresses. There's nothing about her that I think you could call conventionally feminine. She never, quote, shapes up. Yeah. You know, she never gets nicer. She never (laughs) vibes with dance school. She never becomes, I think, the person she might have become if this book were written by a different person. Mm-hmm. As sort of a... She doesn't have a redemption arc. She stays this, like, cool, chaotic kid, which I think is an important part of this book. It's she doesn't a- change. She survives. She isn't broken by this experience. Like Catherine says, what this book told us is that we could be ourselves and survive. Yeah, it's interesting because if you... Compare her to Joe March from Little Women, who is also presented as, like, defying gender stereotypes and also wants to be a writer. Like, I think there's a lot of parallels between those two literary heroines. But Joe March does kind of get corralled into femininity, you know? Mm-hmm. She marries. She settles down. There's that kind of taming element that happens in Little Women that does not happen in Harriet the Spy. Harriet? Hell yeah. (laughs) Her reign of terror continues. (laughs) So Neva Grant wrote an article for NPR that was published back in 2008 called Unapologetically Harriet the Misfit Spy, and she brought up a couple really interesting points about the social context of the book. So she says, in 1964, there were two girl sleuths on American bookshelves, Nancy Drew with her sweater sets and best chums, and Harriet M. Welsh, who wrote things in her precious spy notebook. The gulf between Harriet and Nancy shows us how children's books and children were changing in the 60s. 
Nancy's polite, poised as a ballerina, and ever eager to please. Harriet, meanwhile, is brash and disheveled, without even a hairband to keep her floppy bangs in place. And she's full of herself. Mm. Which she is. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite parts of the book, because it's so surprising, is, like, in the midst of Harriet being bullied, she writes down in her notebook, I love myself. Yes! (laughs) Yes, I love that part. I think we've all felt that way before, that sort of defiant, like, well, fuck you, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I slap. (laughs) Here's another quote from the article. Harriet the Spy was controversial when it came out in the 60s, says Anita Sylvie, author of 100 Best Books for Children, in part because Harriet was a very flawed character. Some critics hated the book, and some schools even banned it. Harriet saw too much, said too much. She even threw temper tantrums and had to visit a psychiatrist. But Sylvie says that that's all part of Harriet's charm. When you read it from the point of view of a child, you see immediately that Harriet is just pretty exciting, says Sylvie. She's a young woman with a really great sense of herself. She even says, I love myself. And then she goes on to say, Harriet gives us permission to not be one of those bridge players sitting around the table acting like your mom. That's a pretty powerful message to deliver in any decade, says Sylvie. So, yeah, there's like a real Harriet does a lot of mocking of kind of traditional femininity as well. Her mom busies herself with a lot of things that don't really seem to matter to Harriet, like bridge playing. And Harriet feels very important about what she views as her quote unquote work, which is her spy Mm -hmm. route. You know, importantly, she bristles when it's referred to as play because to her it's not play, it's work. And, man, she is a enduring force. Apparently in the 60s and 70s, young girls started forming Harriet the Spy Clubs and would spy on their parents. Good for them? Awesome? Yeah. I want to know what they learned. I need to ask my mom about that, because this is one of my mom's favorite books from childhood. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like that... I mean, I don't know if it can all be accredited to Harriet the Spy, but... You know, my brother and I were very into spying. I think children Mm -hmm. in general were really big on this craze at some point, like in their childhood. And I feel like at least some of that has to trace down to Harriet, you know? Yeah, definitely. I found her life to be very exciting. And Mm -hmm. if I weren't so darn afraid of getting in trouble, I would (laughs) have... copied her a lot more my brother and i owned uh (laughs) we were obsessed with spying it was like all we did we owned a like kit and i really want to find the name of like the company who produced it because i wonder if they still make anything like that but it had like all these spy books and stuff and they also it also included edible paper edible paper (laughs) edible paper so that you would you know and any paper is edible if you don't care um so Oh, that we might that might have been a waste of money but we, so you know we would write each other notes and then eat them and everything was great until we brought it to our friend lucas's house i love lucas lucas if you're listening i adore you and his little sister ate all of it Ew. oh man what did it taste like uh bad <laughs> My only real memory of eating it, because we were, like, young, is, you do you have, like, memories from childhood where you're like, I don't know why I remember this, but it's, like, they last for, like, five seconds and you will never forget it? Yep. I remember we were on our way to a dance weekend, 
And I just remembered that we had stopped and we were in the middle of a playground and I was just standing there eating this piece of paper. And I just remember this so distinctly. Yeah, I used to have a notebook in second grade that was like my snack notebook. (laughs) (laughs) Because there was like this stretch between breakfast and lunch at school where I would get (laughs) hungry and I just... And, you know, obviously I didn't eat enough to actually... It wasn't like I was ingesting serious calories, but there was something subversive and satisfying about just nibbling a little piece of paper. (laughs) I'm so upset. But I used to eat paper, too. I would tear off little corners of books and eat. (laughs) A horrifying thing to do. Think about, oh my god, how disgusting, the germs. Yeah, it's really gross. Anyway, how do we get on this? (laughs) Well, (laughs) because Luis Fitzhugh was a lesbian in 1964 and wrote this book. And then years later, I was standing in the middle of this park eating paper. And that is the impact that Harriet the Spy had on generations. And that's it. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. (laughs) Stay reading. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, so I was also very inspired by Harriet the Spy. And I kept a lot of different notebooks because my sister and I also love to spy on people. And I found one of the notebooks. I think I probably wrote this when I was in, like, second grade. And the first page says, keep out. If you look in here, you will be sorry. So that was me trying to, like, avoid a Harriet the Spy situation. This is my first entry in the book. Okay, so this is actually funny because when I was reading Harriet the Spy, I was like, damn, Harriet, the S- Harriet is really mean, you know? It felt a little bit gratuitous at times. I was like, is this really how kids think? Is something wrong with her? How are we supposed to... And that was me reading it as an adult. But then I found my notebook from, like, (laughs) third grade. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, that's accurate. That's realistic. So this is written about a a boy in my class who I did not like. And I will give him a pseudonym. um, Just in case he's listening. It's more than Harriet would have done. Yeah. So we'll just call him John. John is the most annoying kid in the class. I'm serious. I practically sat next to him before, but now Mrs. Farrick moved me next to Alexandra, and this is so much better. But there is a problem with this. I sit in the back of the room, and I can't see stuff that well. (laughs) Anyways, back to John. What kind of name is John anyways? Like the world's dumbest, weirdest name ever. (laughs) Whoever thought it up must be pretty stupid! Exclamation point. Wow. Yeah, so I really got John's mom there. Uh, that's that. So this entry is called Two Boys at Pat and Jim's. Pat and Jim, yeah, they're our neighbors. So the first, it's a, li- it's a bulleted list. The first mm-hmm. bullet is just weird boys. Next bullet. Not sure why they are there. Next bullet. One looks about seven or eight. The other looks about nine or ten. Older one has brown hair. Younger one has blonde hair. <laughs> this next bullet is my favorite. <laughs> Pat and Jim know they are there. <laughs> You are really running out of things to say. <laughs> Next bullet, playing with wood, wearing backwards baseball hats. Um, As was the fashion. Yes. Older one seems more annoying. Wearing Cub Scout uniforms. They went into the barn and came out with a miniature axe. Oh yeah, and then it gets a little more dramatic here. So, younger one is fighting with Jim for the axe. Younger oh. one gets lifted up on the axe. Oh my god. 
bullet. Don't know what that means. And then this is also my favorite bullet. We threw lots of candy into their yard. They found it. <laughs> like feeding birds. It's also like so weird and detached, you know? Like <laughs> we threw. Like why would we do that? I want why would I give them my candy? I don't know. Who's we? You and Kate? I have to assume it's me and Kate. Oh my god. I want to cry. Also, if you are two boys, blonde and brunette who know Pat and Jim, please get in touch. Oh my god. That's like how the spying mystery bug though like totally bit me and Kate. Like we were just instantly suspicious, I feel like of everyone. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, cup scouts, blonde and brunette, no Pat and Jim. One of you is annoying. If this fits you, this description, please call us at 1-800-THIS-IS-A-PODCAST. <laughs> so Leslie Brody is a writer who has written a biography of Louise Fitzhugh. And she also wrote an article for Lit Hub called The Hidden Literary Heritage of Harriet the Spy. And in this article, she talks about some of the themes that we've already touched on, such as how Harriet the Spy was received when it was first published. So she said, for some of the 20th century's so-called children's literature gatekeepers, librarians, teachers, and members of parents' associations who considered themselves protectors of children's welfare and arbiters of moral instruction, Harriet was a problem child. Not because she was naughty and kept a notebook full of na often nasty observations, but because, despite Old Golly's guidance, Harriet does not change. To this portion of the reading public, she was insufficiently contrite, never really chastened, and stayed mean. She does not, in the words of the McCarthy-era HUAC witch hunters, many of them still active as Louise was writing her book, recant. Harriet thrives in the last chapter, intellectually engaged, fully capable of making friends, and of being one. It was particularly irksome to the gatekeepers of yore that Old Golly, an adult who should know better, encourages Harriet to get herself out of a jam by lying. Yeah. I want to find Olgali's letter because I think it's really funny. Olgali says, Naturally, you put down the truth in your notebooks. What would be the point if you didn't? And naturally, those notebooks should not be read by anyone else. But if they are, then, Harriet, you are going to have to do two things and you aren't going to like either one of them. One, you have to apologize. Two, you have to lie. Otherwise, you are going to lose a friend. Little lies that make people feel better are not bad. Like thanking someone for a meal they made, even if you hated it. <laughs> Or telling a sick person they look better when they don't. Or someone with a hideous new hat that it's lovely. Remember that writing is to put love in the world, not to use against your friends. But to yourself, you must always tell the truth. And then this next paragraph, which is super weird and amazing. She says, another thing. If you're missing me, I want you to know I'm not missing you. Gone is gone. I never miss anything or anyone because it all becomes a lovely memory. I guard my memories and love them, but I don't get in them and lie down. You can even make stories from yours, but remember, they don't come back. Just think how awful it would be if they did. You don't need me now. You're 11 years old, which is old enough to get busy at growing up to be the person you want to be. No more nonsense, old golly Waldenstein. Amazing. That's that. Another thing, if you're missing me, I want you to know I'm not missing you. <laughs> Incredible. I'm writing notes for my kids over the summer. What if I just wrote that in all of them? It would be a lie. I am going to miss them. I do lie down in my memories. 
Yeah. Which is why I am not nearly as well adjusted as Olgali. I found that line to be very profound about having your memories but not getting inside them and lying down. Much to think about. That one personally attacked me. Yeah. Olgali and I would not get along, I don't think. I am much too sensitive. <laughs> Harriet is one of the few people who I think would really thrive under Old Golly. Yeah. She's a, she's a tough nut. So yeah, it's very interesting because one of the things that surprised me about the book was how little moralizing there is in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like really pretty astonishing. I remembered vaguely the plot and I expected the plot to be something along the lines of Harriet writes mean things in her notebook, her friends find the notebook, Harriet realizes she's screwed up, she sincerely apologizes, and learns a lesson about what you should and shouldn't say about other people. And that is not what happens in this book. Nah. (laughs) What the lesson is, is that you should say mean things and publish them. Yep. Because Mm -hmm. voyeurism sells. (laughs) (laughs) She's unapologetically herself, and she is mean. That's what surprised me, too, is that she's meaner than I remembered. Mm-hmm. I guess because, like, like you said, as a kid, I was like, yeah, kids are like this. But as an adult, I was like, oh, God, kids are like this. Actually, I was thinking about this today because I think I'm the nicest that I ever have been at this age in my life. Me, too. <laughs> Time has really softened me. Kids are very mean and very judgmental. Like, I was going through some of my old notebooks and diaries from elementary school, and I hated people in my class. Yeah! You know, I'm sorry, I'm having, like, a flashback. I also used to have a notebook. It was a Lemony Snicket-style notebook. Like, it had an illustration of Count Olaf on the cover. And I drew a picture on the inside of me making this, like, as Count Olaf, like, holding a pen I was, like, clearly trying to write like him. I was like, I shall not use this diary as a place for, like, random quibblings, but will instead use it to keep track of those who displease... Some, something about hating people. <laughs> like, it was so weird. My God. I mean, kids are incredibly judgmental. I think that we have this impression of them that they're, like, unsullied by the cruelty <laughs> of the world, but I don't think nope. so. They have to learn empathy. And kids pick that up at various ages. And we've all met adults who let us know that some people never learn empathy. But, you know, kids, for a large chunk of their lives, are too self-centered to to fully grasp other people's feelings. For some kids, that's just up through age four. And for some kids, it's well past 11. Yeah. Well, I think what makes Lou look scary is that, like, We all know that we have private thoughts, and thank God no one else can hear them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the invasiveness of having those private thoughts shared with other people and then being judged based on them is just, like, pretty terrifying. Yeah, yeah! Of course, Harriet isn't totally innocent in this because she did decide to write all of them down and then play a game where someone knocked the book out of her hands, so... Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about some of our favorite moments in the book. I'm going to take us to, I'm going to take us to a sweet one first. Yeah. On page 76, because this part, when I read it, I kind of had to put it down for a moment because I know this feeling so well. And Harriet is like a really well-written kid. And she thinks the way I think a lot of kids do at times. She's watching Janie do something. 
And it says, Harriet sat looking around her for a while, at Janie's back bent attentively over her work, at the sunlight coming in the window. The late afternoon sun, which looked sad and pleasant at the same time, and which reminded her abruptly of New Year's Day last year. There hadn't been anything important about that day. She just happened to look at the sun in the same way. I thought that part was so real. A very human moment. I get that feeling all the time. All people do. And it was nice to see it referenced by this incredibly strange child. And I think that kind of gets to what people talked about when they talked about the realism of the book, that it, it was kind of unusual in its realism. And I would say also in its literariness, because similar to like a literary novel for adults, there is superfluous information that does nothing except build atmosphere and characterization. All of the details about the people that she spies on, I, I don't know, I could see this book getting chopped in half by an editor. Mm-hmm. Making, yeah. speeding up certain aspects of it, because there's, there's a long portion of the book where, like, nothing Im- important really happens. We don't have any major conflicts introduced, but it's all setting up the scene and the atmosphere and letting us get to know Harriet's character. The first quarter of the book, at least, there's not really any major conflict. It's just a lot of like scene setting, characterization. We get to know Harriet's routine. And that's really important because it gives us something to compare the nightmarish conflict to later. Mm-hmm. You know, that we see that there was this kind of fall from grace for Harriet. But I could totally see a less forgiving editor cutting a lot of the excess description and characters. Like, do we really need two best friends like Janie and Sport? Mm-hmm. Should we just have one? But I'm really glad that it was all left in because it is kind of a remarkably sophisticated story. It is. On the other subject of very human, very kid-like lines, the on page 216... One of the things she writes in her notebook that I, like, remembered for a long time after I first read it. This is, like, in the height of the bullying. And she writes in very tiny letters. Whatever happens, don't let me cry. And I remember that feeling so well and really resonated with me. Just don't show weakness. Yeah. It's also a very funny book. Yes, it is. One of my favorite, favorite moments is when... The Robinsons, who, as we mentioned earlier, are the couple who don't really do anything except purchase things and then wait for them to arrive. They got a statue, like an art artistic statue. And the narrator says, And there indeed was the strangest thing Harriet had ever seen. It was an enormous, perhaps six feet high, wooden sculpture of a fat, petulant, rather unattractive baby. The baby wore a baby cap, huge white dress, and baby booties. The head was completely round and carved out of butcher's block so that it resembled a beautifully grained newel post with a face carved in it. The baby sat on its diapered bottom, feet straight out ahead, and fat arms curving into fatter hands, which held, surprisingly, a tiny mother. (laughs) I want to see this statue so bad. It's funny, too, because you can also see, like, I can picture Louise Fitzhugh as someone who was kind of involved in like the avant-garde art scene in the 1960s in New mm-hmm. York and kind of and so I see her there as kind of like poking fun at 
that kind of art. I really love, I think it's so hilarious, this scene where, and this is what leads up to Old Golly being fired, is that, uh, before she quits, her boyfriend, the man who she marries, uh, comes by and has dinner with her and Harriet while Harriet's parents are out and then offers to take them to the movie. And he's a delivery man, so he has a bike. And I guess Harriet rides in the basket? Yeah. It's, I guess, a very big basket. But yeah, they like line it with a blanket and put Harriet in the basket. And then the lid closes and Old Golly's riding on the handlebars. It's very chaotic and the image is terrific. Harriet could hear all the traffic noises and Old Golly and Mr. Waldenstein's conversations as they yelled to be heard over the noise. I'm the happiest man alive, Catherine, he yelled. Look out for that truck, yelled Old Golly. Don't worry, I have precious bundles, shrieked Mr. Waldenstein. <laughs> it's so cute, too, because it's like very clear that for all three characters involved in that moment, it is pure bliss. Yes! <laughs> It's probably the most joyful scene in the entire book. Yeah. And by far my fave. It's hard to even narrow it down because there's so many funny things that Harriet says. But on page 241, she... This is in the height of her being bullied by the Spy Catcher Club. And so she wants to get revenge on them. So she makes a list of things that she can do to to her classmates to torment them. And the first part is actually not funny. It's very sad because she's obviously describing some sort of psychological breakdown. But she says, something is definitely happening to me. I am changing. I don't feel like me at all. I don't ever laugh or think anything funny. I just feel mean all over. I would like to hurt each one of them in a special way that would hurt only them. And then she made a list. Marion Hawthorne. Frogs. Put one in her desk. A snake would be better. Rachel Hennessy, her father, ask her where he went, Jesus. <laughs> which is just vicious. And that one she does. Yeah. Laura Peters, her hair, cut it off or make a bald spot. She also does that. Pinky Whitehead, mean looks. That's all he needs. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Andrews, tell her father something terrible about her, which is a lie. Um, notably, Carrie Andrews' father is Harriet's doctor. Beth Ellen Hansen hates to be hit. Hit her. I love hates to be hit. Like, more, more than the average child. Yeah. Janie, break her little finger. Insane! Absolutely crazy! I know. Uh, sport. Call him a sissy and tell everyone he reads cookbooks. <laughs> I'm sorry, the disparity between those two punishments is definitely noteworthy. I know. Tell me if you were Janie and you found this particular notebook, you wouldn't be a little extra pissed. <laughs> but then again, everything we've read about Janie up until now suggests that this would really be the only way to get through to her. Yeah, it's true. And um, then boy with the purple socks, question mark? She's decided the boy with the purple socks is so boring that she has never even learned his name. And so it's really hard for her to come up with a way to torture him because she doesn't know anything about him. Anonymity is a blessing. All right. So one of my other favorite funny moments in the book is when Harriet is trying to be an onion for part of the Christmas pageant. They are all supposed to dress up like different pieces of Christmas dinner 
and then do like an interpretive dance as that food, which is weird. And Harriet gets assigned to be an onion. It says, that night after supper, she tried to practice being an onion. She started by falling down several times, making a great bumping noise each time. The idea was to fall in a rolling way, the way an onion would, and then roll around in complete circles several times, then roll slowly to a stop the way an onion would if you put it down on a table. Harriet rolled around and bumped into a chair, knocking it over. Her mother came to the door. She looked down at Harriet, lying there with the chair on top of her. What are you doing? She asked mildly. Being an onion. Her mother picked the chair off of Harriet's chest. Harriet didn't move. She was tired. What in the world is all that noise I hear in here? I told you, I'm being an onion. It's a pretty noisy onion. And then later on in the book, this is like at the very end, Harriet says, I have thought a lot about being things since trying to be an onion. I have tried to be a bench in the park, an old sweater, a cat, and my mug in the bathroom. I think I did the mug best because when I was looking at it, I felt it looking back at me and I felt like we were two mugs looking at each other. I wonder if grass talks. I love that scene because it's also an introduction into what is really Harriet's kind of first attempts at empathy. Mm-hmm. Because then there's this scene where she sees Janie and Sport and they don't have like a big obvious uh, reconciliation but it's framed as them kind of rejoining her. And she looks at them and she says, somehow this way she could see them better than she ever had before. She looked at them each carefully in the longest time it took them to reach her. She made herself walk into sports shoes, feeling the holes in his socks rub against his ankles. She pretended she had an itchy nose when Janie put one abstracted hand up to scratch. She felt what it would be like to have freckles and yellow hair like Janie, then funny ears and skinny shoulders like sport. Especially the part with, like, the holes in sports socks. It's the closest she gets to becoming a kinder person. That's true. I guess it's not accurate to say that she doesn't change or grow at all. She does. It's in a very subtle way, and I think masterful. And she also, on page 164, makes one of, like, my favorite observations in the entire book in what is also maybe, like, one of the most heartbreaking scenes but she's spying on Harrison Withers, who is the multiple cat owner, through a skylight. And she says his face was the saddest face Harriet had ever seen. And she looks back and forth between the two rooms through the skylights and sees that his cats are gone. And understands that the health department must have taken them. And she writes, I will never forget that face as long as I live. Does everybody look that way when they have lost something? I don't mean like losing a flashlight. I mean, do people look like that when they have lost? Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, she can be very profound. She can. And and as we know, of course, Harriet is about to lose everything. <laughs> All right, before I start feeling something, shall we read reviews from... Shall we switch to a now a word from us kids? Sure. So there weren't that many reviews of this book, which really surprised me because it's such a classic. But it had an average rating of four out of five stars on Dogo Books. And the first review is by Kenzie. They said, Harriet the Spy, I'm going to tell you about my opinion of Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, published in 1964. This book is about an 11-year-old girl who goes to middle school and always carries around her journal where she writes things good and bad about everyone, even her friends. Side note, very few good things are written in the journal. Yeah, yeah, just to be clear, I don't think we read any of them if there are. Yeah, 
And that was actually kind of one of my frustrations or like critiques of the book as I was reading it because I totally can get on board for a story about the joy of observation, especially like as a writer. I think there's something really powerful about paying attention to other people and thinking mm-hmm. about them deeply. But what I can't really get behind is just like the incessant judgmentalness and cruelty that really undergirds most of these observations. And I think that a lot of that probably has to do with her age. Yes. Like, I think that empathy is a a muscle that she'll get to use more (laughs) as she gets older. We see her doing that towards the end of the book. But yeah, it was kind of a bummer to me because I feel like observation can be a great tool for empathy building. And... For the most part, Harriet does not use it for that. Anyway, back to Kinsey's review. She says, In my opinion, this is my favorite book. I like it because it gave me a lot of emotions like sadness, happiness, shock, anger, and more. I think that fourth through sixth boys and girls would like this book. People who like to read chapter books and longer books would also like this book. This book is not the best for younger kids. It has big words and not many pictures. A very astute review, Kenzie. I love that it gave you a lot of emotions. It gave me a lot of emotions also. Uh, LeBron James, no idea if it's the real one. It should be noted, I'm sorry, the full title is LeBron James 1. So, could be. Could be. LeBron, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Says, I really enjoy this book. Harriet the Spy is a brilliant classic that everyone should read. This is so much better if I imagine it's actually LeBron James. It talks about Harriet and her friend's sport. Harriet always says that you will only remember things if you write them down. So Harriet goes around spying on other people, learning their stories. Sport, of course, doesn't care. He just wants to be a ball player. You definitely should read this book. I recommend it highly. Four stars. I think it really overplays the importance of sport in this novel. Yeah. They're not a duo. No, but, you know, it makes sense if it's LeBron James writing it that he would be interested in the character who wants to be a (laughs) professional athlete. He really saw himself in sport. It definitely also leaves out, like, I feel like the, the whole crux of this review is that the focus is really on Harriet and sports friendship and leaves out the big problem with that. Anyway, LeBron James, I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. We would love to have you on the show. Uh, It's an honor, sir. The next review and final review is by Candy Express. They wrote, Harriet the Spy was pretty good. It's got a couple of problems that Harriet has to deal with, like her nurse, old golly, who leaves with this man because they love each other. Life and everything is difficult, and Harriet realizes that there's no reason (gasps) to mourn, (laughs) and that old golly would appreciate Harriet to move on and to stop crying. Harriet also has a notebook where is keeps her observations in. Soon her friends get their hands on it and they turn against her. But Harriet learns more about how life doesn't always take the turns you want them to and that there's always a solution if you try hard enough. Four stars. Four stars. There I can see the kids, like, instinct to want to make a lesson out a of the moral. book. moral, yeah. Yeah, a moral like, out of the book that's honestly really not there because Harriet doesn't try hard to solve no, this problem. No, she does nothing. All she does is throw shoes at her parents and scream. The main moral of this novel is, like, go to therapy. Yeah. You know? It's good for you. If you can. You know, some kids want a happy ending. Love the take, life and everything is difficult. Yeah. I want to get that printed in, like, that loopy script that's on everything I hate. You know, on like a mug. 
life and everything. But I would appreciate you to move on and to stop crying. So I think now is as good a time as any to transition into that aged poorly, which is our segment where we comment on the things in the book that aged poorly. Mm -hmm. So this book was obviously written a long time ago, and you can tell in certain parts of the book there's a lot of fixation on people's weight, particularly on, like, noting when people are fat or ugly and especially, I don't know if you felt this way, Terry, but the opening of the book is kind of shocking, actually. With the yeah, are you t- Old Golly's mother? Yeah, so the beginning of the book opens with Old Golly coming to Harriet in sport and saying, basically, it's, it's presented as, like, Harriet has this very, like, privileged, sequestered life, which she does on, like, that breeze side, and Old Golly is like, I need to show you how other people live. And... Then what Old Golly does is take Harriet to Old Golly's mother's house, and... Are we supposed to understand that she lives in a home of some kind? She clearly lives on someone else's property. Yeah, it's unclear. I wasn't sure if it's because she rents a room because she's poor, Mm-hmm. Or if she's, like, living help. I don't know. It was a really weird situation. But, yeah, so Harriet is, like, automatically extremely judgmental of Old Golly's mother because she's old and confused and fat. Old Golly was leading them in, all of them squeezing past that mountain of a stomach because the fat lady stood rather stupidly in the doorway. And then Old Golly just, like, roasts her mom while her mom is yeah. in the room. Within an inch of her life. Uh, Old Golly says, Behold, Harriet, a woman who never had any interest in anyone else, nor in any book, nor in any school, nor in any way of life, but has lived her whole life in this room, eating and sleeping and waiting to die. She says that about her mom right in front of her. And it's implied that her mother doesn't really understand what she's saying, but that makes it worse. Yeah, I was, I was like, are we meant to understand that her mother is, like, intellectually disabled or something? Like, I don't... And then it's just never talked about again. I'm like, was that scene really necessary? Exactly. Like you said, it's never talked about again. So why are we doing this? It's just, like, an opportunity for Harriet to ride the subway, which we get the impression she doesn't do very much, and then just voyeuristically gawk at poor people. Mm-hmm. And then go home Fun and eat afternoon. cake. Good God. So, yeah, I would say that there are definitely moments where it crosses the line from being honest and irreverent Mm -hmm. into just being cruel and kind of bigoted. There are some jokes about Native Americans that are pretty offensive. Also, Janie's character, I was very disturbed by when we first meet her. As it goes on, I kind of find her endearing, and I also really enjoy just how like off the wall weird she is but all of the references like multiple times to Janie blowing things up like Janie could blow up the school Janie could blow up the dance school Janie could blow up the whole world first of all you can definitely see like the 1960s cold war anxieties about the atomic bomb permeating Mm -hmm. this book but in a different era the era of school shootings where kids do terrorize their classmates it did feel particularly yikes to me. Like, maybe someone yeah. should check in on this girl. Janie says at one point that, like, her parents want to take away her science materials because they're afraid of them. Probably because Janie's threatening to blow them uh, yeah. up. 
Fair enough. And then Janie says, there have been people before me who have been misunderstood. And the way Janie said this, with her smile dropped and her eyes boring into Harriet's, made shivers run up Harriet's back. Yeah, that is a hideous phrase. (laughs) And then it's just not, like, you think that this would be a central conflict in the book, and it's just not. (laughs) In fact, the main critique that Harriet has of Janie is like, who does Janie think she is? Like, she'll never be able to blow up the world. (laughs) That's the dig that really gets under Janie's skin. Not Dear Diary, I think I might be friends with a a budding sociopath. (laughs) Okay, let's see. What else? So our next segment, The Book Was Better, we will discuss the various adaptations of this book. So Harriet the Spy was made into a 1996 film of the same name, starring Michelle Trachtenberg as Harriet and Rosie O'Donnell as Old Golly. I have not seen this movie. I was going to watch it, and then I saw that it had a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I just didn't have the energy to deal with that. First of all, let me just say, um, I'm re-watching it right now. It is produced by Nickelodeon and is like 80% sound effects. It's very interesting. Fully recommend. But I did see this movie in my childhood, and I loved it. Like, I hadn't watched it a lot of times. Like, I, I think I saw it, like, once or twice, but I loved it, and it, like, stayed with me. It made me really attached to Rosie O'Donnell, who plays Old Golly. And for a while, Rosie O'Donnell was like kind of a, 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 I don't know, for lack of a better word, kind of a joke, which really pissed me off and made me like very defensive of her. I had no other reason other than my love for her in this movie, but I felt like I knew her and it was just very important to me that she not be treated with disrespect. I watched the trailer and then I, that's when I was like, okay, I can't do this. Because it was, <laughs> he had like that guy who I feel like narrated every kids movie trailer in the 90s. Yes, He's like, in a world. Yeah. Harriet has no friends. Her life was perfect until. Yeah. And I just couldn't deal with it. I, I did look at some of the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Steve Rhodes said, quote, the whimsical and meaningless first part dissolves into a mean-spirited and disturbing concluding section. I feel like that's a good description of the book, too. Yeah. And probably a lot of people's lives, honestly. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) The whimsical and meaningless first part. How would you describe (laughs) your childhood? (laughs) Give me two words. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Mean-spirited and disturbing concluding section, i.e. my late 20s. (laughs) There was also a Disney Channel version of the story that was aired in 2010 called Harriet the Spy Blog Wars. Oh, God. Which I haven't seen for obvious reasons. And in August 2020, it was announced that Apple TV was going to make an animated television adaptation of the novels starring (laughs) Beanie Feldstein as Harriet and Jane Lynch as Old Golly. And I hope that it's in the illustration style of the book, of the art of the book, because I think that would be really cute. I also need it to take place in the 60s. I'm tired of them modernizing things. I want to see Mad Men era clothing. Me too. Oh, wait, can, can we add, like, just a few more quotes I thought were funny? Oh, yeah. I love this quote on page 281, uh, re Harriet's classmates. They are just rats. Half of them don't even have a profession. <laughs> Because, again, Harriet sees her spying as a job. And that so, is correct. And so she's like, all of these rats, all they do is play bridge. 
They don't even have a profession. She also tells us this amazing daily routine that her class has. Uh, Miss Elson came into the room and they all stood up and said, good morning, Miss Elson. Miss Elson bowed and said, good morning, children. Then they all sat down and punched each other. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, amazing. Ah, So now I think we should wrap it up by talking about some lessons that we've learned from Harriet the Spy. Anything we can apply to our real lives. So in Everything I Need to Know, I learned in a children's book, Dr. Perry Class, who teaches pediatrics and journalism at NYU, points out what it is about Harriet the Spy that makes it so good. And he says, quote, the most important lesson of Harriet the Spy is a message about the intoxicating and addictive joys of observation, of looking at the people across from you on the bus or sitting next to you at the coffee shop counter or ahead of you in line and noting down the details of appearance and clothing and gesture of listening in on their conversations, of course, of trying to figure out their family dynamics and their backstory. That's what Harriet did with her spy route and her spy notebook. She worked on figuring out the world and its stories. She did it because she was driven to do it. She did it because she had figured out how much fun it was. She did it because it was her way of operating in the world and making it her own. Which I think is a lovely and um, very generous interpretation of what Harriet is doing. (laughs) Of Harriet's bullying behavior. Yeah. Also noteworthy, Stranger Danger is fake, and you should absolutely let your kids wander around in alleyways. Yeah. That's how they will discover their passions. Yes. Especially if that passion is cruelty. (laughs) Yeah, let them climb on top of skylights. But seriously, unstructured playtime is very important. Yes, it is. And it is a myth that the world is more dangerous now than it used to be. We just think it is because of Amber Alerts and stuff like that. So, totally fine. Release your kids into the woods. Rearrange them. My parents did it to me, and I'm fine. I have almost all of my fingers. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. I have all of my fingers. Also, the flip side of letting your kids wander around is that if you are wealthy, you should check your dumbwaiters for mm-hmm. children. And also, mm-hmm. if you're not wealthy, you should check your skylights. <laughs> Also, if you own a lot of cats, do not open your door to men in hats. Yep. That one rhymes, so it's a helpful reminder, like a little game. Again, if you have books full of nasty comments, don't play a game that involves getting them knocked out of your hands. I think that one's obvious. Yep. Another one that I mean sincerely is that lying is good, actually. Mm -hmm. Society is constructed on the nice lies that we tell each other, and part of growing up is realizing how important it is to say nice things when you don't mean them. Exactly. If you ever find yourself saying that you're not fake, that you're a quote, real person, because you hurt people's feelings. Oh, I don't have a filter. That's one of my favorites. No. Oh my God. We get it. No one likes you. (laughs) You're unpleasant to be around. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, Let your kids eat cake all the time. Make it like a structured thing. Just make sure you get vegetables in there, like tomatoes. (laughs) Sometimes if you're really mean, you can become an editor. So try it out. Make sure to alienate all of your friends in the process. Yeah. So we will rate this book out of 10 tomato sandwiches. I will go first. I think I would give this book... I don't know. I have a hard time with this because there's aspects of this book that I adore and aspects of this book that I'm like... Hmm, not so big on. (laughs) 
not so much endorsing that. So I've waffled between a seven and an eight. And I think right now I'm feeling generous. So I'll give it an eight out of 10 tomato sandwiches. Fair enough. I'm going to give this book a nine out of 10 tomato sandwiches personally. I love it. And obviously it spawned one of my, I guess, favorite movie adaptations based on how I feel about Rosie O'Donnell. And that is our assessment. Sarah, where can they find us? So you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at reading underscore recess, or you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. And to all you judgmental tweens out there, stay reading. And writing. 